Hey there, everyone, and welcome to Twin Movies. I'm Ben Phelps, and I'm joined by my regular buddy and inventor, Gabe Garrick. Hi, Ben. Howdy, Gabe. Every year, Hollywood releases two movies based on the same idea. So we ask the big question, which movie did it better? Today, we'll be reviewing two classic twin movies. Not sure they're classics, but two twin movies about a girls' reunion that goes off the rails. It's Rough Night versus Girls Trip. Let the girls' games begin. So, as usual, we'll kick off this episode with an overview of these twin movies and a flashback to our first encounter with them. On the 16th of June, 2017, Rough Night was released. Here's the synopsis from the Internet Movie Database. Things go terribly wrong for a group of girlfriends who hire a male stripper for a bachelorette party in Miami. So, Gabe, did you originally catch the all-time classic Rough Night when it was released at the cinema, perhaps at the premiere, and what was that experience like? Yeah, I did. I did. I did see this at the at the cinema. I mean, it wasn't a premiere. Uh, I don't know why you had to lay it on thick like that, but uh, I was uh, <laughs> I was lured in by the uh, hilarious uh, looking trailer, and uh, I saw it at the pictures. It was uh, it was fine. Now this is a classic quote, girls movie, unquote, always marketed that way, I should say. So did you see this with your wife or with your dad? Was this a classic dad and Gabe movie? (laughs) Um, Well, this fell out of the sort of uh, year blocks where I would go and see many, many films with my dad, which was mostly like, you know, from the ages of 11 till 24. Now that I'm like approaching death, uh, or middle age or whatever the fuck. Um, no, I saw this with my missus. Um, uh, but look, we should say just because it's a movie about five ladies, you can roll out to that solo if you're a man or go see it with your your man buds. So for me, I did precisely that. I saw this solo, but I actually caught it on video on demand a couple of years ago. Uh, I didn't see it at the cinema and I'll get to the reason why I didn't when we come to our review. So perhaps we should just jump ahead only a few weeks uh, to the 21st of July, 2017, when Girls Trip was released. And here's the synopsis from IMDb. When four lifelong friends have to travel to New Orleans for the annual Essence Festival, sisterhoods are rekindled, wild sides are rediscovered, and there's enough dancing, drinking, brawling, and romancing to make the big easy blush. What a... What a synopsis, huh? <laughs> yeah, I actually quite like this synopsis. We rag on IMDb synopsis uh, sometimes, don't we? But uh, I- Well, we do because sometimes they're written by the studio and sometimes they're written by a reviewer. And the older the film is, they tend to be written by a reviewer, just an average Joe or Jane blogs. Mm. This one feels like it was actually written with someone who actually likes the film and actually watched the film. Yeah, it was me. I wrote it. <laughs> so, uh, Gabe, talk me through when and how you first watched Girls Trip. I think I saw this at the movies too. I think again I saw it with the saw it with the missus. Uh, and again, I don't know why I have to point out that I saw these two female-led romantic comedies with the missus. Um, actually, I watched them alone and sad in my video game playing chair by myself. Uh, I live in a house <laughs> where it's basically a empty room with just one sad lazy boy sitting opposite a milk crate, which I 
precariously place my PlayStation 2 on. <laughs> uh, and that's, that's how I watch this movie. <laughs> podcast listeners, there was a time when that was not far from a joke. <laughs> hey, man, what are you talking about? I had a drug problem. <laughs> that was nothing to do with uh, wearing fedoras and it was all about um, punching billies. Um, no, look, I saw this at the movies and um, from recollection had a pretty pretty good time with it. Wow, so only three weeks after the first similar film, you're back there again. <laughs> yeah, that's right. That's we'll get right. to that. <laughs> we'll get to that. So I actually did watch it by myself, sadly, <laughs> by myself uh, on a beanbag only last night in preparation for this podcast. Actually, no, sorry, I saw Rough Night last night um, for the second time on the old beanbag by myself. <laughs> the, old, the old beanbag. <laughs> and my room wasn't as, you know, Sparsely furnished, as you were describing before. Yeah, but Ben, you've had this beanbag since you were like 13 years old. It's fair to say it's yeah. a fairly disgusting beanbag. It was once the dog's beanbag and the dog passed it on to me. Really? When he got sick. No, no, I'm just joking. <laughs> oh. Normally it goes the other way around. Anywho, I saw this with my partner. Uh, I thought, you know what? She doesn't really like the types of films we review for this podcast, even though we review quite a diverse range of genres are from different eras, but she's never really in the right mood to see one of the tween movie rewatches when it suits me before a podcast recording. But I thought, you know what? This is a, quote, girls movie, unquote, a date movie. And again, inverted commas because it was promoted that way. So I thought, you know what? I'll encourage her to watch Girls Trip with me and- if we're lucky, we might get to rough night with her afterwards, I should say. <laughs> the film, you mean. The film, that's right. The, the movie. Yep. <laughs> oh, aye, aye. Hey, look out. Um, and we watched it together, uh, video on demand, and we'll get to this in our review, but she didn't stick with the whole film. So I will explain more. So why don't we actually, before we jump to our review, let's jump into a quick kind of comparison as to how we got here, a bit of a shallow dive into the Hollywood history to see if one of these films was inspired by the other. So let's start with Rough Night. So Rough Night is a authorised remake of a film from the 90s called Very Bad Things. Wait, what do you mean? Is it really? None of that is true. Oh, okay. <laughs> but it is very similar, isn't it? Very, very similar to Very Bad Things. No, Rough Night's a film directed by Lucia Aniello in her debut feature uh, she was she's known from a lot of TV stuff like mainly Broad City, which is kind of like dramedy. Uh, I think that was HBO, wasn't it? Uh, I'm not sure who makes Broad City. Who made Broad City? Yeah, anyway, she made this with her co-writer, Paul W. Downs. Uh, this actually was a pitch. So it was a pitch board around 2015 or so, uh, a bit of a bidding war. This film was one of those blacklist films from 2015 which is the list of the best unproduced scripts as determined by the agents of Hollywood. Anywho, she actually pitched this as a comedic version of The Big Chill. What? Yeah, that, that was the pitch. As opposed to just a comedic version of Very Bad Things. As opposed to just saying it's a female version of Very Bad Things. Yeah, totally. Because Very Bad Things is already a black comedy anyway. That's true. It doesn't really have any Big Chill vibes, does it? Huh. Not at all. But you just tell she's gone for the, I guess, the more respected reference film opposed to Very Bad Things, which is a fun film, but doesn't have the same cultural impact and 
hasn't been lauded with awards as the big chill was. No, fair. Anywho, six months later, they got Scarlett Johansson on board and everyone else followed, and that's the background on that film. Wait, wait. Do, are you supposed to pronounce the J in her name? Johansson? Johansson. Oh, you tell me. Have I been saying it wrong all along? No, maybe I have. I've been calling her Scarlett Johansson. Ah, and what about the T's? Do you pronounce them like Scarlett Johansson? <laughs> I, I pronounce it Scarlett Scarlett Johansson. Johansson. Anyway, whatever. Yo, yeah, I think so. My youngest son has a name starting with J, but my Danish mother-in-law pronounces that with a Y. So I think it's like that composer as well from Sicario and so on. So it's Johansson. R.I.P. Anyway, I could be entirely wrong. Whatever. And I think the contested enunciation of her name is the most interesting thing about this film. Oh, <laughs> look out. Just fine. Anyway, let's jump across to Girls Trip. Where and how did that come about? So Girls Trip, um, we'll get to it. That This film has been an absolute smash. But long story short, this was pitched around February 24, uh, 2014. Uh, Hollywood uh, director Malcolm D. Lee uh, came on board from the very start and it was actually written by two guys, but then they brought on two female screenwriters, Kenya Barris and Tracy uh, Oliver. Oliver, was it? Um, to try and, I guess, infuse the script with a stronger female voice. Uh, basically, their objective was to break down the barriers of respectability in politics. But more than that, just show black women being carefree and having fun like everyone else. That's the quote. So- they said, look, we love Moonlight, we love Hidden Figures, but we always want to see a movie about some women who are having fun and just hanging out. So this was their, I wouldn't say reaction to those more serious films, but they want to sort of like have a show a more diverse and feel-good movie, which this film ended up being. Uh, so this film brought on Queen Latifah and Jada Pinkett-Smith in early June 2016 and off they went to the pictures. Uh, that's pretty much it. So it appears that both films came about in their own way without any connection to each other once again, which has become a growing trend on this podcast series. And it was just absolute serendipity that they came about at the same time. Or you might say for the film that didn't do as well at the box office, bad luck. It's interesting because in 2017, we could have made this a, <clears throat> what do you call four twins? Like a a... Uh, twin four-way, twin once, twice, quintuplet. What's it called, Ben? What's your, you're a smart guy. What's the Roman name for four? Aren't they quadtuplets? Quad. Quad. Oh, of course it's a quad. Quad. Uh, like a quad bike. See, I'm very uh, clever. Very good. <laughs> uh, well, yeah, because, you know, Bad Mum's Christmas came out this year and so did Fun Mum Dinner in 2017. It was a, it was a, it was a cornucopia of four or five women getting into mischief. Movies. Well, Gabe, if you play cards right, perhaps I might be pitching the next podcast episode will be Fun Mom Dinner and uh, what's the other one called? Bad Mom Christmas. Oh, that's right. That was the sequel, wasn't it? Yeah. Okay. Brace yourself. Coming to a podcast episode near you, a new podcast series. No. Anywho. Let's just see if we get cancelled after this. <laughs> okay. Here we go. Now, let's start their review of Rough Night. And this will be, look, who knows? These reviews could both go off the rails. Let's put out caveats. Let's start, let's start from the start. I'll always put caveats on what I'm going to say. 
I am not the target audience for either of these movies. So in the same way that someone can be shown the best Marvel superhero film of all time, if they don't like Marvel superhero movies or any superhero movie, they're not going to enjoy it because even as though it's the best execution of that particular genre, it's not made for them. Mm. Similarly, I'm not the target audience for Rough Night or Girls Trip. Now, I can enjoy a film that is the best version of its genre in, in a way where I might appreciate it. But then appreciate isn't really the same as enjoy. So putting myself out there, I am coming to these movies as perhaps not the best audience. Now, having said that, I would try to review them objectively <laughs> and look at it through the, the lens of believability of storyline or perhaps just whether it's a tightly edited entertaining film with character growth and so on and try not to bring any basically disinterest really to my review because wow yeah these films just there you go yeah they just that's some caveat Ben yeah so hold on before you go, that's my caveat okay fine here's my I tell I'm the target audience for these I you know I like comedies. Just because it doesn't have a, a dude front and centre doesn't mean it can't be enjoyable or I can't be like, oh, maybe this is a thing for me. i got to drag my missus along to every bloody Tom Cruise movie <laughs> like where he falls off the side of a plane or lands in a dam. So Okay. No, uh, see, I agree. See, I'm not the target audience for Bridesmaids and I love that movie. I guess the point is... It's not just about whether you're the, the target audience, it's whether the film can cross over to a broader audience. Because both these films, I think, were unquestionably made for a certain demographic. But obviously, you want your film to try and reach a, a wide audience and reach all four quadrants, as they say, of those demographics, if you can, without the film being kind of like dull and boring because it's a master, jack of all trades, master of none. Yeah, that's right. Fair, fair. But I so mean- I guess I'm not the target audience, but I can still enjoy it, but I feel it was targeted to a certain audience. Is that fair to say? Well, neither of these movies could be pure four quarters because they're all, they've both got uh, enough swearing to make sure that that uh, child quadrant uh, is not uh, included in that pie. But, um, but I mean, I guess just because the the- the characters are women or African-American women. Doesn't mean it can't still, you know, be aimed at everybody. Can it? Does it? Look, 100%. I, like I said, I love Bridesmaids. I don't think I was the target audience for that. Um, I really enjoyed watching uh, The Five Bloods last night um, by Spike Lee. That's probably a, a film targeted at a broader audience, I think, because it's more of a sort of um, – war, uh, men on a mission genre film. But anywho, that's sort of where I come to it, that I want to enjoy every film, even if that film isn't targeted at me, but whether that film was accessible, entertaining and interests me is another story. Fair enough. That's my massive caveat. Tell me, let's start with Rough Night, which I think we'll both agree is a rough film. (laughs) But without loading it up, did you like it? What worked for you and what didn't float your boat? And tell me, is this the best execution of a girls' reunion concept? <laughs> uh, I have to say I, I didn't particularly enjoy this movie. It feels a little bit like it 
trying to service too many genres at once. Um, you know, it wants to be funny, but it wants to be vicious, but it wants to be warm-hearted, but it wants to be kind of dirty, but it wants to be sort of extreme, but it also wants to be kind of a bit safe. I don't know. It wants to be realistic, but it also has some, like, incredibly goofy sort of like, um, uh, what do you, uh, pratfall humour? I don't know, whatever you call that. Um, and then it also has a war crime, which is Kate McKinnon's fucking accent. So I don't know, like, there, there's, there's certainly bits that, that work and bits that are funny, but it just sort of seems a little bit, I don't know, what would you call that? Uh, pulled in many directions, undercooked a little. Yeah, it's interesting, isn't it? Like, which parts do you think aren't a natural fit? Which part do you think sort of kind of like shoehorned in? Like, was it the crudeness of the humour? Was it the pratfalls? Was it Kate McKinnon? <laughs> um, I don't know. I guess the stuff that actually went for heart in a way, stuff that sort of felt like it was going for pathos, like the Gillian Bell character's relationship with or je- the jealousy she feels towards Kate McKinnon and Scarlett Johansson's character's relationship. Uh, you know, like I don't, I don't love the movie Very Bad Things, but it's quite singular in its viciousness. Uh, you know, it goes out of its way to be quite unpleasant, um, but it sort of knows that's what it's doing. You know, it's, it's, very, it's very violent and it's quite off-putting, but it's consistent or like tonally consistent, whereas, you know, this doesn't quite feel like it gets there. Uh, you know, if you're doing jokes around having accidentally killed someone, you're in duck comedy town. Um, and yeah, I don't know. It just, it just, it just felt like this also tried to have its cake and eat it, have its cake and eat it too. Is that the saying? That's the saying. You got it. You nailed it. Yeah. Right. Um, nice. Um, and yeah, those two things just didn't, didn't work. I, I, I guess I would have preferred it if it had just really launched into being fucked up and mean, like giving dead guys hand jobs, doing too much cocaine, you know, um, that, that that stuff is the stuff that worked better for me. The the obnoxiousness. I'd like more obnoxiousness. Yeah, it's interesting. I think when you look at a particular type of way of treating this concept, like a reunion or a hen's night or something like that, you think, well, what are the stakes? What's the worst thing that could go wrong? And killing someone is one of those things, right? I mean, you and I have even written a screenplay which actually does this, is actually about this happening, uh, sort of inspired by very bad things. Hell, Ben, I've actually done it. (laughs) I I killed a guy. (laughs) Gabe? You'll learn about that on Ben's other podcast. It's a true crime one. We're going for that true crossover, aren't we? Yeah. So I think if you actually have a, in this case, their particular reunion is actually in the form of a hen's night, the idea of someone being killed, I mean, I like that. There's not. You can actually do that. It's been done in a film called, I think it's called Stag Party or Stag. A Stag Stag Night? Stag Night? Yeah, with one of the, uh, which brother is it? Kevin, the guy from Entourage. The guy from Entourage? Isn't, wait. Anyway, the the brother. Kip, Kip Pardew? Brecken Meyer? No. no. <laughs> Sam, our sound editor, will be like just banging his head right now, his forehead on the desk. Who is the brother of the guy 
There's a lot of these movies. From Wild Things. There's like one called Stag Night. From Wild Things. Hang on, hang on. Who's the brother from the guy who was in Armoured and Wild Things and The Outsider? Who's that guy? Who's the actor? Matt Dillon. Matthew, Matt Dillon. Kevin Dillon. Is it Kevin Dillon? Oh, yeah, okay. Oh, man, we got there. That was that was a really rough ride. There's just a lot of movies called like Stag and Stag Night. Yeah, okay. Anyway, that's such a popular concept or an extreme idea of a really good time going really wrong. It's just a classic trope of movies like choose the worst thing that could happen and then make it the basis as the catalyst or the inciting incident for your movie. We've done that in one of our screenplays. Very Bad Things does it, Stag Night does it, and now this film does it. Okay, that's cool. I mean, I don't have an issue with necessarily doing that, but then you've got to try and bring something different to the table. This feels like what they brought to the table was basically saying, let's cross Very Bad Things with Bridesmaids. I mean, that's pretty much the, the true pitch of this film. If you were to pitch this film or retrospective, retrospectively pitch it, that's how I'd put it forward as. And- it's funny because you're right about the the humour, like which way you're going to go? You're going to lean into it being an R-rated gross-out comedy with lots of swearing, antics, think the hangover, and those films are the most successful R-rated comedies of all time. Or do you go for like the sweetness, the uh, the friendship side, which is probably closer to Bridesmaids? I guess on paper... I can actually see how the pitch for this seems pretty logical and reasonable. Like, why not combine both? Combine The Hangover with Bridesmaids, with very, very bad things. So intellectually, I get that concept. But why do you think it's a bad thing to try and have the sweetness and the roughness, the sweetness and the crudeness? Why do you think those two can't be kind of good bedfellows? Look, I guess there's no reason why they 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 can't. I think it's sort of limiting to think that a film can only be one genre in a way. But I guess they just kind of don't, they kind of just don't work here together. And maybe it's just, maybe it's just that thing where, I don't know, like you feel, would they be actually having some of these conversation amidst this um, problem they've got, you know, would you actually be worrying about feeling jealous around a, Look, I know it's a movie or whatever, and that's a contrivance. I don't know. Look, all I can say is for me they just rubbed up against each other uh, in the wrong way, not in a way that created fun friction. Okay. Well, speaking of friction, give me your thoughts on Kate McKinnon's performance and character in this film. I feel like Kate McKinnon comes up occasionally. Um, and <laughs> It's funny, isn't it, because we actually mentioned her last time and we have a huge apology where we said, Look, Kate McKinnon can be great. However, in this film, and that film we described last time was, it escapes me. She was in Yesterday. Were we talking about her in Yesterday? Yesterday, that's right. And we actually did say that she was badly suited to that movie, but we did admire her and her other work. Mm. But what do you think about her in this film? I read somewhere, right, I read somewhere that said her accent was intentionally bad. I just don't see it. No way. No. I think she was going for it and she just fucking shits the bed. Yeah. <sighs> Australian accents, they're so hard to do. And when you when you see people trying and failing, ah, oh, as an Australian person, it just it's just brutal. Brutal. 
Um, well, they do say that the Australian accent is one of the hardest accents to try and imitate, and that's not us as Australians bragging. That's just a, a fact of linguistics that it's really challenging. And we've actually heard Americans and Australians do great British accents and vice versa. But as we mentioned last time we spoke about accents, it's really only Kate Winslet that I can think of in uh, The Dressmaker and Holy Smoke that actually has nailed the Australian accent. Uh, uh, Dev Patel in Lion, pretty good. Dev, ba- Dev Patel was very good. You're right, you're right. But we're talking about a handful of people. It generally doesn't come off well. No, true. And I think what's interesting about this is that some comedians can be great actors because they come to acting through imitation. So I'm thinking of Jamie Foxx, for example. Mm. Like, that the way that they act is to impersonate, mm-hmm. which is why it's interesting that Jamie Foxx has done quite a few true life characters in his filmography. And apparently in his preparation process, a lot of the him, Jamie Foxx and a lot of other comedians study someone else to try and capture their mannerisms, the inflections and the way that they speak, et cetera, and then replicate that. Whereas others as actors basically try and find the character from research and in internalising it, and then that internalisation expresses itself through the way that they speak, the way that their hands move, et cetera. And I think watching Kate McKinnon in this movie and also in Yesterday, to me, I just see the stand-up comedian imitating. I don't see an actor performing and reacting to someone in the same scene as her. I see her doing her shtick. And there is no connection or relationship with the other actors in any way. And as we discussed yesterday, it's just totally so different from what everyone else is doing. And that to me isn't great acting. That's just a great sketch comedy. That's just great imitation, but it's not actually acting. And again, this film does have funny moments, but I just feel like Kate McKinnon's in a different movie. So back to you, like what doesn't work besides the accent itself? Is there anything else that does or doesn't work about her performance for you? Well, you can tell when she's improvising and look like uh, Ghostbusters, which don't want to get into because, fuck, that's just a bullshit cam of worms. Um, Sometimes it feels like her improvisations in of themselves might be okay, but they sort of detract from the scene. Whereas, for instance, Gillian Bell, who plays Alice in this, I think is really good. She feels much more, even though she's playing a character that's really dialed up, she feels much more natural. And her comedy, I suppose, is much more believable or whatever. I think, in a way, Gillian's the sort of MVP of this uh, MVP of this movie. Yeah, I agree 100% with you. I think she's absolutely fantastic. Whenever I see her on screen, I think she was in The Night Before, which was that movie set uh, in Office Christmas Party. And I think she was also in another film. Let me just think here. Was she also in that one about the end of the world or not? Uh, no. Could, could be wrong. I mean, she's in 22 Jump Street, uh, Workaholics. She was great in that. Office Christmas Party. Is that the one you were talking about? That's the one I'm thinking of. Yeah. yeah. Oh, no. She's also in The Night Before. Oh, there you go. <laughs> um, which is, is that the Christmas Party one? I don't know. No, that's the one actually where I think Seth Rogen and co wear jumpers, Christmas jumpers, and go out smoking dope the night before Christmas. Right. Or something like that. But Gillian Armstrong. Gillian Armstrong. Sorry, Gillian Armstrong. What's her name? Gillian. Bell. Gillian Bell. Gillian Bell, I do think, 
if she's improvising the film, it's much more cohesive. Mm. It doesn't take you out of the film. And if she's not improvising, when she is delivering her lines, she it's just she's funny and she can do that great walk between heart and also just meanness or nastiness. Um, I think she's a really good performer and I agree. I think she's the MVP and much better than Kate McKinnon. Um, I want to come back to Kate McKinnon again, by the way. Yeah, sure. There is slapstick in this film involving her, which is clearly choreographed, so it's not at all uh, improvised, that it's just bizarre. Like it's inconsistent with the movie. Like you have these naturalistic scenes that, do stick to the basic physics of our earth. And then stuff with her, which is like from a, a different movie entirely. It's like from Ace Ventura or something like that. There's a scene where she comes off a, um, is it a skidoo? You know, those little things you sort of skidoo? use. I don't know. What do you call them? The, the little things you used to, the little motorboats that have little propellers. Look, if it's not called a skidoo, it should be skidoo. I think skidoo could actually be the one that you use on the ski slopes. Skidoo. And she comes off it and is launched onto the sand and lands on her head. And it's it, look, it's just not particularly funny. And again, it doesn't seem consistent with the rest of the movie. Now, is there anything that does work for you? Like, is, is there a version that they could have done that actually would have built on some of the good attributes of this and taken advantage of the stag night, very bad things, hangover style plot? What do you think? I mean, yeah, I guess. I just I just wish it went harder or further or grosser, you know. Um, I just wish it really committed to, you know, like you mentioned Bridesmaids before, for instance. You know, the sequence in Bridesmaids where Melissa McCarthy shits in the sink and then um, when the red-hot lava comes out of her and then Maya Rudolph... Um, <laughs> craps in the wedding dress in the middle of the street. You know, it really feels like they're committed to pushing that sequence kind of as far comedically as it could go. You know, they they go all the way with it. Whereas this, it feels like they sort of just brush up of, against the edges of um, that. You know, like the the character, there's like a, there's sort of an overcooked side plot where, the writer of the movie playing Scarlett Johansson's husband has to travel across country, drive really fast, and they set it up as he's got to do what that astronaut did by wearing a nappy and he sort of is forced to smoke a little bit of crack and but he never shits himself. <laughs> and I don't know, you know. And he's wearing a nappy the whole time. Or he never blows the guy for crack, you know, or we never even see the guy he sets up to blow the guy for crack, blowing the guy for crack. And it's just like, let me see someone at least suck a little bit of dick for crack, <laughs> you know, like. You're a simple man with simple pleasures. You know, like, like, and that's sort of, you know, like uh, Ty, Ty, Ty Burrell plays, and it was Demi Moore apparently, um, play neighbours who were like, you know, swingers. And they all just feel like kind of cliche surface level versions of that. And then it, and at one point one of the characters has to go over there and get down in a, three-way with them. But it never, again, never really feels like it takes that idea as far as it could go in a way. I don't know. It just it just feels like the whole movie. I mean, and Scarlett Johansson's character, she's kind of got this thankless straight guy role where she's like a senator or something 
So there's like the danger, oh, will she potentially her like senatorial or gubernatorial, you know, tilts get uh, ruined by being involved in some shenanigans. But I don't know, she just sort of frowns her way through the movie or something, you know. Um, uh, I'm not suggesting she should smile more, (laughs) Um, but very clear. (laughs) I don't know, it just feels like missed opportunities. And compared to, you know, a film like Girls Trip, which I think is much more assured in what it wants to be or where it's positioning itself, its story and its comedy, I don't know. Yeah, Rough Night just feels like it it, it misses more than it hits with its gags and tone. Yeah, so what you're basically saying in some respects is if you're going to go for the R-rated comedy, lean into it. Fucking A. Like, go, go all the way. Like, you're already in there. You've got one foot in there, so... Don't just use the word fuck lots of times. Actually, you know, go for it. And and maybe this is actually a point to make, I think we'll get to this in our review of Girls Trip, is the tension that has been in the past, let's say up until about 15 years ago, where it was okay to, to depict blokes, you know, having sex, making crude sex references, uh, swearing a lot, drinking a lot. Um, wanting sex, um, being the initiators of sex. And up until like around 15 years ago, I think is when it started changing, women weren't betrayed by Hollywood in the same way. And then films like Rough Night, Girls Trip, Bridesmaids have come out. Uh, The TV show Broad City I mentioned earlier, uh, the TV series Girls, to depict women with those vices, with those traits, and it's become more normalised on screen as it is off screen or should be more on screen and it should be more off screen, but it's still very unusual or uncomfortable with some people. Maybe, I don't know, but maybe they kind of like just kind of like pull their punches slightly with Rough Night, fearing that it would be considered to be too crude because these are female protagonists, not male protagonists. In The Hangover, sure, fine. The studio executives might say, we can show blokes doing that. But with women, uh, they might come across as, quote, slutty, unquote, or something like that, or crude. I don't know, but you have to think, given the history of Hollywood in female representation and equality of stories in something like a girl's reunion or a hen's night, you'd have to think there would be an anxiety there of pushing the boundaries too much. Whereas a guy's film, an R-rated comedy, I don't think they'd even think about that as much at all. I mean, think about those films like um, those sex comedies from the 70s, like Revenge of the Nerds and so on. Like 40 years ago, they weren't pulling their punches with guys getting up to inappropriate hijinks. Yet here we are 40 years later, and perhaps there's still a little bit of anxiety about pushing it, quote, too far, unquote. Yeah, perhaps perhaps you are. Perhaps you're right, but... Who knows? Look, maybe all I wanted just more dong on the screen, you know? <laughs> You're a civil man. Again, just, civil man. You wanted more of those plastic penis uh, glasses they wear. I get that. I understand. Yeah, you know. All right. That's right. Well, speaking of uh, crudeness, and I think Girl Strip definitely leaned into it, let's jump to our review of Girl Strip. So, Gabe, what worked for you and what grinded your gears? Uh, I, I, I enjoyed this movie quite a bit. I think... Like I said, I think it knows exactly what it wants to be. It feels quite self-assured, I guess, in its execution. The four women 
are all very good. I think they have great chemistry and they have a good warmth towards each other. You know, uh, their subplots are all much more clear than, say, Rough Night. Like, you know, each one has a pretty well-defined problem and all of these things sort of intersect at some point in the in the film, which all feels very tonally cohesive. I I would say I enjoyed this film. I enjoyed it quite a bit. If I'm going to ding it for anything, though, Ben, you know how much I like a short movie. Two hours. Too long. Yeah, it is very long. Um, tell me, what do you think about the casting in comparison to Rough Night? Do you think this film took advantage of the cast that it had and made the most of the concept about a girl's reunion, a women's reunion? Yeah, I think I think it's interesting because in Rough Night, you know, uh, Scarlett Johansson is obviously the uh, kind of dull lead and Kate McKinnon and Gillian Bell both get to do stuff, but Zoe Kravitz and Alana, is that our surname? Alana Glazer, sort of disappear into the background. I think Girls Trip does a much better job of kind of foregrounding all four of the leads and making sure that they've all got a kind of point of view or, you know, a much more clearly defined bit of personality or whatever. And I think Tiffany Haddish, I don't know if this was her first movie role, certainly a breakout movie role in that sort of, I don't know, I guess a dumb comparison is Zach Gilafakanakis in The Hangover. But um, I think she's pretty great in this in terms of sort of bringing um, the foul-mouthed part of the the comedy um, as a sort of too-much friend. Um, uh, she's actually been in quite a few movies before this. I believe she was a uh, resistance soldier in the Termination, Terminated Salvation video game. Oh, okay. Um, anyway, yeah, I think they're all really great. Yeah. No? You do, you don't, you do not agree? Well, my review may be clear by asking you this question. Uh, okay. What's the plot or what happens in Girls' Night? Girls' Trip. Girls' Trip, sorry. Uh, well, they go to the Essence Festival and while there they, you know, have various problems uh, <laughs> like uh, Regina Hall's- Describe a problem. <laughs> Regina Hall's husband. She, Regina Hall discovers her husband is cheating on her. Queen Latifah is hiding the fail, you know, the failure or the failing of her gossip business. Uh, Jada Pinkett Smith has been is a divorcee who has been alone for a long time and uh, needs needs to be set up with a with a man to rekindle some fire in her loins. <laughs> um, <laughs> and uh, I can't remember what Tiffany Haddish's character's subplot is, but she she's there to have a good time. Um, so yeah, I mean, look, I wouldn't say it's like a they need to heist the uh, magical diamond from a uh, unimpenetrable safe guarded by you know fucking dinosaurs, but angry Hulk dogs. Yeah, whatever. But um, you know they've all got a they've all got a thing. And look, yeah, I know what you're getting at that it, it doesn't have like a they're not trying to oh we've lost Doug we need to find Doug. Um, and I think, as I said, the runtime of the film, you know, because it is a little more loose, probably doesn't help it feeling a, a touch unfocused. But, you know, someone getting stuck on a, uh, 
what do you call those zipline things and then pissing themselves? That's pretty good. Oh, it's, that's the worst scene. Okay, all right. Ah, I like that scene. That brings me to my review. See, I, I, I feel like you and me, I feel like you and I come at comedy from a different angle. Yeah. Ben, if someone's being pissed on, funny. <laughs> <laughs> Look, to me, I think what this film gets right over Rough Night is kind of the inverse. So let's start with the positives. Girls Trip has some great characters. For a start, they've got four, not five. Makes it a bit easier to try and just succinctly convey their personalities on screen. More screen time each. They seem to be a different mix of characters in every way, like even even physically. Like Jada Pickett-Smith looks like, you know, she's like half the height of Queen Latifah. Like on screen, physically, they are radically different in their personality. Um, Internally, they're very different to where they were back as kids as the Flossy Posse. They've all gone different directions. Uh, in some ways, it's a bit extreme. Like, you don't need to have characters in a reunion film in real life. I mean, in real life, it's not as extreme as that. But for a movie, it makes so much sense. Like, throw them to the far-flung corners of the universe, married, not married, lost their job, got, is it successful, etc. bring them together, and, of course, it just heightens the tension between them. So that's all really well done. So I think that's great. I think Tiffany Haddish is fantastic, like a classic case of seeing someone thinking, wow, where did he or she just come from? Like clearly no one's an overnight success, but we hadn't seen her before in any big Hollywood films. And she's got a lot of energy on screen and uh, I'm sure her career will go absolutely gangbusters if it hasn't already since this film. So this film has great characters, great actors playing those characters that work with each other, unlike Kate McKinnon in those two films we mentioned yesterday and Rough Night where she's in a different movie to everyone else. In fact, you'd almost say the same thing about Ghostbusters as well. She was criticised for the same reason. These four characters feel like they are all friends. They feel to be in the same world. They are reacting on screen to each other in a very cohesive way. They're all my positives. I think the story is aimless and is a series of set pieces and everything you described before, I, I agree with, like, they all have these different sort of challenges or subplots before they come together. Like, for example, someone's having a relationship drama, someone's lost her job in a house, etc. But it doesn't, to me, really actually relate to any of the antics they're getting up to in the main plot in any way. Um, and all I can think of when I think back to this movie is a series of vignettes of them at the Essence Festival and... Tiffany Haddish dancing on screen with, who was it? Was it Common? No, it was someone else. I can't. P. Diddy? P. Diddy, right. Because um, I think we saw Common, P. Common's also in it. P. Diddy and a third, was it Usher? Anyway, they're like three. Yeah, Ma- Mace, Neo. Uh, yeah, yeah. So some huge stars. and Ava DuVernay. Is she there as well? Yeah, she's, she's at the Essence Festival. She's interviewed at some point. I can't remember. Ah, right. She, I don't think she's dancing on stage. Okay, okay. So I can recall sequences like that. And in that scene, for example, that's where they reveal Jada Pickett-Smith wearing the sexy dress, where in the preceding scene she was kind of, you know, portrayed as being quite prudish. And so her growth is becoming more of a party girl and stuff. And then I think of that scene when they're on that zip line. And I cannot for the life of me remember how we get to that scene or where that scene leads to. It's kind of silly. And both women... I'm not sure which ones. I think it was uh, Tiffany Haddish and Jada Pinkett-Smith. I think it's those two characters. Mm-hmm. 
both for some unknown reason, which I can't quite work out, do a piss from the top of that little flying fox stuck in the middle and they piss like there is a fire hydrant that's been sort of somehow inserted uh, into their undies for comic effect. And it is like so ridiculous. It's it's like not even 120%. It's like on 400% of reality, which doesn't make any sense to the reality of the rest of the film. Um, and I don't know, that just to me was just, it wasn't that it wasn't funny because it was someone pissing over other people. Because that, as you say, if depicted right, can be funny. It was just that the physics of it and the silliness was so over the top, it didn't make sense for a film that was otherwise grounded in like these Wait. characters having very personal stories about affairs and so, so on. So it just seemed kind of like silly. You're, you're saying- My big ding- Your big problem was it- Is the physics of the we. <laughs> Jada Pinkett Smith pissed too much. That whatever sort of device they had attached to her was set on like, you know, elephant piss or something. <laughs> Yeah, exactly. Right. Like in the same, like it just, it was just like, it was a different world of comedy in the same way that Kate McKinnon coming off the boat was kind of like that as well. It just didn't make sense for that type of movie. Um, it To me, it actually took away from the rest of the movie because other co- comedy in the movie, it's just more, uh, I guess, naturally grounded, which brings me to The Grapefruit. <laughs> <laughs> oh, yeah, that's a great sequence too. You mean Tiffany Haddish? Yeah, it, it is. Um, yeah, yeah. That actually is, though, comedy grounded in the physics or the logic of that world. Now, I'd never seen this. So for the podcast listeners who haven't seen Girls' Night. Girls' Trip. Gabe, Girls' Trip, sorry. I keep confusing <laughs> both films. Gabe, describe delicately or not to our listeners what? The usage of grapefruit in this movie. Why do I get the job of describing? Okay, <laughs> you get a grapefruit and then you cut the you cut it. You got to explain why and how and set it up. What do you mean? Okay, what do you mean why and how? Why why a grapefruit even is being used in the first place? Oh, do you mean for like sexual reasons? Like you would be yes, <laughs> you would be you'd be using this grapefruit for sex reasons. Although it's citric, I guess. That's the thing that I don't quite understand. That doesn't make sense, right? Um, anyway, but, I mean, but, but you're putting the grapefruit, you're cutting it sort of in half or like not really in half, like into a third and using the middle third and then cutting the middle out of that and then putting that over the over the the, the erect phallus and then um, uh, sort of stroking and sucking <laughs> at the same time. Uh, <laughs> so I, I think Tiffany Hiddish describes it as so it feels... Like you're getting sucked and fucked? Uh, <laughs> Something like that. That's right. She First of all, there's a scene where she actually demonstrates this with a banana at the table. That goes on for a long time. Good scene. It go, okay. Funny scene. And then it actually returns where Jada Pinkett Smith's character actually employs this, this technique mm. uh, and it goes wrong. And the funny thing is when it goes wrong and she mentioned it got in his eye, I naturally assumed it was referring to the eye of the guy's penis because- Dick eye. Dick eye because if you're using citrus down there, that's got to be a high risk. And then it transpires when the guy runs out with his grapefruit or two grapefruits around his dick screaming. What's actually happened is that in this jerking off motion, it squeezed some grapefruit into his eye and it stings. Uh, And that's the joke. And it's kind of funny in the movie. But- it doesn't 
makes sense to use citrus down there. But anyway, there you go. Yes. That's just my thoughts on the use of fruit, uh, insects, and uh, whether it's the best choice of fruit. Sure, sure. Um, <clears throat> I fear contact dermatitis. <laughs> um, so getting back to the similarity between these two movies, Girls Trip, is this the best version of this similar concept? Like what what does and doesn't work about this film in taking advantage of the concept where things go terribly right and terribly wrong when a reunion of friends occurs 20 years after school? I don't know. In a way it kind of feels like a, a hangout movie, you know, and I think if you're in the right mood, those are great, like, I think you're kind of right in how you described it before. It's almost like a movie with four B plots as opposed to one heart. Totally, yep. You know, one heart A plot or whatever, however you want to describe that sort of thing. But to me, it kind of works in this. Like, I think they're committed enough to making sure that every scene has enough, they're they're throwing enough jokes at them that even when a few jokes miss, there's enough hits. So if you're into it, yeah. I think I think it's just a an easy an easy time. Um, whereas you know, I think a version. I think what you're probably getting at is like, what is a version that has like a harder a plot? You know, um, if if for instance, Queen Latifah's character was the one who was putting on the essence festival, you know, and she had everything riding on the festival going well, but it's potentially going to get derailed by her three friends who've turned up to support her or something. You know what I mean? Like, and she's much more ostensibly the lead or you give that plot to Regina Hall or you give that plot to Jada Pinkett Smith, whoever. But the feeling that there was sort of much more at stake, you know, and I guess that's what this doesn't have. Like none of the women can really lose anything in a way. They, they're starting at a point where they've sort of drifted apart as friends so they can't lose their friendships more. Jada Pinkett Smith is starting at a point where she's lost her husband so she can't lose that more. Regina Hall, we find out, is being cheated on so she can't lose that. So no one's really, except for Queen Latifah's sort of gossip rag business, no one's really, you know, there's no huge stakes. But But in this case for me... I don't really care. Like, that doesn't really matter. Like, a meteorite hurtling towards the Essence Festival wouldn't make this movie better. Yeah, I agree. Look, it depends on what your poison is. I don't like hangout movies, so any hangout movie is not going to be for me. So, for example, I'm not a fan of many Seth Rogen movies because I don't want to hang out with Seth Rogen and his mates. Hey, Ben, 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 what would be your your dream hangout movie? Like, who is the character that if they just made a hangout movie, you know, like... See, I don't like hangout movies. In fact, even if it was like a great character, I just don't like those movies. I find them boring. It's like if I want to hang out with people, I'll hang out with people. I don't want to hang out with people by, I guess, essentially like sitting on the couch amongst them as the audience viewer, watching them have a good time, and I'm just passively watching. I just find that boring. That That's just me and the types of movies that I like. So hangout movies aren't really my cup of tea. I, I, I remember actually hearing a review of Trainspotting 2. I love it. Yesterday. Yeah. I feel I really enjoy, and they're talking about this thing about hangout movies and so on. Now, that movie's got enough going on that it isn't a hangout movie. It has hangout moments. But what it does in that movie is what I appreciate more is that there's a drug scene, and I find depictions of drug scenes in movies to be so boring. To me, it's like worse than hangout. It's like we're hanging out 
and you're on drugs, actor on screen, and I'm just watching this straighty 180 in the cinema. To me, it's just so boring. I just, I, it drives me to despair. And there's a drug scene that happens. I think it's in Girls Trip, uh, and yeah, it just doesn't do anything for me. Uh, when I say drug scene, it's basically like it's a drugs slash drunk scene, and I just don't find it very interesting because I get it. Like, yep, okay, great. Twenty seconds, they're hallucinating, they're seeing things differently. Fine, like I'm, I'm done. Like that, I don't need any more time spent doing that. And in Train Spotting, they do the, the same thing where he catches up with Sick Boy and they do drugs. But to try and show how sad it is 20 years later that these guys are doing the same thing, Danny Boyle shows a lot of it through the perspective of the mid-20s girlfriend who's watching them and she was the age that they were in the first train spotting movie. And so she's watching this and it looks, from her point of view, pretty sad, (laughs) like these middle-aged blokes who just can't kick their shit and grow up and- I feel like that chick. I feel like Sick Boy's Girlfriend in Train Spotting 2 where I'm just watching it going, eh, it's kind of sad. Like I'm not against drugs at all. I just don't know what sit there watching other people have drugs for a very long extended period of time. So that's just me. So that's why when the drug scene comes up in Girls Trip, I'm like, oh, really? Like that scene, particularly in any Seth Rogen film, just bores me. Hmm. Well, I guess I like hangout movies, you know, from a Seth Rogen movie to The Deer Hunter, which is a hangout movie. Yeah. So they, and, and that's it. And so therefore, that's why Girls Trip or Seth Rogen, those movies probably aren't my type of cup of tea. I do enjoy The Deer Hunter. But yeah, for that reason, I didn't dislike Girls Trip. I just was kind of bored by it, to be honest. Uh, and Rough Night, I was kind of bored for in the other way, in that it had more of an A type plot. But not much, not, not many B plots, and not much characterization. So, on that note, I think we should uh, move on. Any final thoughts? Uh, no. Well, at some point, I think we should explore more around the idea of the Deer Hunter being a hangout movie. I feel like I said that as a throwaway, but the more I think about it, I steeple my fingers and go, "Hmm, yes, hmm." All right. We'll just just put those steeples on hold, and we'll return to it. Uh, Let's do our quick combined review. Um, I don't think it's even worth asking which film has aged better as they're both only three years old. I don't think anyone's been cancelled by social media since, have they? I think we're all in good form. I think I think everyone's safe. I'd say Girls Trip's probably aged better in that I think people will remember it longer <laughs> than they will remember Rough Night. Yeah, 100%. Yep. <laughs> so. I agree. Okay, let's do a bit of behind the scenes. I did some serious uh, research, and by that I mean Googling on my phone. Not much to speak of, except I did read that Paul Thomas Anderson was so taken by the performance of Tiffany Haddish, he's actually reached out to her to ask if there's anything she'd like to collaborate on. And I've got to say, if you're an aspiring actor-actress and you had P.T. Anderson come to you about a future project, man, you'd seize that with both hands. Yeah, right. There you go. PTA. Yeah. Exactly. Uh, now, spot the Aussie. Were there any? I don't think so. Were there? Well, does Kate McKinnon count? Ah, uh, boom. No, I don't think so. <laughs> um, Big Trouble in Little Production. Both these films apparently went swimmingly, so no dramas there. So jumping into marketing, methodology, madness and missteps, I don't think there really was any. These films seem to basically, you sort of, 
from the trailers and the poster art, you got what you paid for, I think. So I don't think there's anything there to speak of. So we should probably jump to the box office. And this is a very, very interesting story. So this is interesting because it relates to representations of minorities on screen and also the whole idea of if one film can steal the thunder of another film, they have the same concept. Does the first film kind of cash in the box office before the other film? These, these two films are an exception to the rule because neither occurs here. So Gabe, rough night. You're not going to believe this. So have a guess what the budget was for a start. Uh, $40 million. No, it was pretty conservative. It was $20 million. Okay. It did $22 million at the US box office in total. Right. In total. Plus another twenty-five internationally for a grand total of forty-seven and a half million dollars worldwide. Wow! So effectively, that's a flop in terms mm. of how much it made overall. It'd have to make a lot of money back on streaming services to try and break even. Now, this film came out first, and this film has all white protagonists and oh no, Zoe Kravitz. Oh, Zoe Kravitz, you're right, actually. Yep, uh, but a, a white lead. So I can imagine Sony at the time thinking, okay, we're going to beat Girls Trip to the cinema, we're going to be there a few weeks beforehand, and we've got Scarlett Johansson, Black Widow from the Marvel movies. You know, we've got a pretty good supporting cast here from Bridesmaids, Broad City. Uh, We're safe as houses. Three weeks later, Girls Trip, absolute stunning performance. Same budget, $19 million. It does a $31 million in its first weekend for a domestic total of $111, sorry, $115 million. Incredible. It is the most successful uh, film by all black above-the-line creators, ride director, producer. Uh, it then does another 25 and a half internationally and – the way this has worked traditionally, except for some actors like Will Smith, it's always been very hard for American films with black leads to open internationally, just the way, the way it's been over time. So it didn't do as well overseas, but still did a worldwide total of $140.5 million, which is phenomenal. Like, I actually feel like great joy that this film just does that to say, yes, you can be massively successful by having non-white characters on screen, by having female leads on screen, being made by non-white uh, female uh, creators, I just think that's fantastic. I mean, all of the women, except for maybe Tiffany Haddish, are probably over 40 as well, which is even rarer again. Yeah, you're right. Like over 40, that is basically box office poison as perceived by Hollywood and as an actor, often you're considered to be sort of over the hill. So, yeah, you're right. That's potentially another ding against this film to get it to be successful, and it just proves, no, it's a really good story, and it goes to show that people, I think, have a much wider palette uh, for different stories by different storytellers than Hollywood often anticipates. So Totally. Or, or, there's, or, or there's a whole audience that feel like they're not particularly catered to and won't show up for, you know, something that doesn't feel for or about them, but then when something is made, hey, look, turns out they'll um, turn up in in droves because, you know, uh, there's a little bit of representation there. So 
Yeah. I, I would have been greenlighting a girl's trip too the day after this opened. Yeah, it is weird actually. I read about that and there has been talk about it. Um, perhaps it's just contract negotiations for salaries uh, because it still costs $90 million to make. So if everyone wants to double their salary up to $40 million. But I would have thought they could make a similar amount, if not more, for a sequel, particularly now actually. Like we're in this incredible time with Black Knives, Lives Matter and the idea of having more stories told from a great diversity of people. I think there's a real hunger for it. So I, I, I'm surprised they haven't sort of pushed ahead and made a sequel because they could. I mean, this film doesn't have a concept where everyone dies at the end or anything. Like you could easily have them come together for another reunion and something has happened in between. It's happened three times with The Hangover. Now, obviously with diminishing returns, but you can do it. <laughs> yeah, now, now I know why they didn't do a sequel. Uh, maybe, look, maybe everyone just went on to do their own things and, you know, continue uh, in that way. But, but it's pretty amazing the, 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 the box office bucks it made, eh? Yeah, it's really good, like really encouraging. So I'm not a big fan of either of these films, uh, but I'm really, really happy that Girls Trip made that sort of money. Like that's a fantastic thing. So let's just jump to the Rotten Tomato scores. So, Rough Night, 44% with critics. Now, do you think Girls Trip did better or worse than that? Uh, surely better. It's got a fantastic score, 91%. Yeah, there you go. Certified, very fresh. Uh, now, with audiences, uh, Rough Nights is incredible, only 29%. Yeah, right. Uh, where it has C-plus cinema score when audiences exited the film at the time. Girls Trip had A-plus, which is incredible, and its tomato meter score is 78%, which is pretty incredible. Mm. All right. So I guess the question is, did the first film help or hinder the box office of the second film? <laughs> well, this feels like one of those rare ones where in nearly every other case the, the first film that's come out has sort of not stolen the thunder or whatever, but you know, capitalised on being first. Have we had one before that has been so diametrically opposite? No, never. In this podcast series, after like almost 30 episodes, we've never had a situation like this where the first film hadn't eaten the lunch at the box office for the second film or at least, you know, significantly diluted interest in the second film. Like generally, the first film gets out, even if it's worse, it doesn't matter. Because if it's a big concept that people are interested enough in, such as an asteroid hitting the Earth or uh, what else have we done? <laughs> We've done 30 of these. Um, uh, bugs and ants. Bugs and ants. Vampires. Yeah, generally the first film basically. Because what happens is is you're basically damned if you do and damned if you don't. If you're the first film out and you're fantastic, everyone loves that movie. It makes a, a lot of money. People think, well, I've seen the best version of that story. So what's the point of seeing another version of the same idea? And if you are alternatively the worst version of that concept, then people go, well, that was pretty rubbish. I might see the second one because uh, it could be better, but generally it spoils it for them. They think, well, I saw the first concept was crap. I'm not going to see the second one either. So either way, the second film suffers. So in this case, yeah, a total anomaly, but- Really thrilled for it. And also, not just anomaly based on one concept coming first, but for all the reasons that we just described, how Girl's Trip was possibly hindered much more from being successful, uh, it makes it even more remarkable. So, yeah, 
incredible anomaly. All right, time for the awards, Gabe. Are you ready? I am ready. Have we decided on any kind of music? Uh, do we need do we need awards music? Yeah, remember it went like this. That's right. That's right. I now recall <laughs> the music that sound designer Sam has just edited right then. But Ben, but Ben, if you don't like that, <laughs> if you don't like that, how about this? Oh, I like that. All right, okay, let's go. Well, let's do that. Let's start with best title. All right, Rough Night or Girls Trip? Girls Trip. Uh, yeah, I agree. Did you know, a bit of behind the scenes, that Rough Night's first working title was Rock That Body? Ah, terrible. Yeah, they changed it, though, for fear of litigation, but there you go. Wait, who's going to litigate them? The Backstreet Boys? Are they the artists behind the lyrics to that song? I can't recall. I, I feel like their song might be Rock Your Body, though. Oh, possibly. Okay. Rock your body. Keep going, Dave. <laughs> Rock your body. <laughs> this is now an ASMR podcast where I just do lyrics to Backstreet. <laughs> Interestingly, gentlemen, the song you're referring to by the Backstreet Boys is titled Everybody... Brackets, Backstreet's Back, which features prominently at the end of the movie This Is The End from a previous podcast. And it does have the lyric, Rock Your Body, but there is a song by Justin Timberlake called Rock Your Body, and maybe they were worried about being sued about lifting the title of that song. All right. Best poster, Rough Night or Girls Trip? Girls Trip. Yeah, I don't like either poster. For the podcast listeners, Rough Night basically has Scarlett Johansson wearing a sash, a wedding sash, and holding a hand to her face, looking very concerned and perplexed. And then all the girls behind her doing like party gestures and has like the title in kind of like a neon font. Girls Trip, I guess, is more evocative. It has basically the shaved uh, shiny legs of a man, implicitly a stripper, standing legs splayed with his bum to camera and the four characters looking up at him with very expressions, uh, they kind of reflect their personalities as they're admiring the drunk, the junk in his trunk. I thought this would have been your favourite. You're a cyclist, Ben. You like to cycle. You can appreciate a uh, well-defined... Uh, Calf? <laughs> Is that the name of the muscle? Calf muscle? <laughs> That's right. I thought you would have been like, you know, check, check out check out them gams. Look, they're not great posters, but Girls, Girls Trip, I think, actually tells you what's going to happen. I think, ironically, Girls Trip actually looks closer to what you think would be a Hens Night movie than Rough Night. Um, like, you usually associate women seeing a stripper with the Hens Night as portrayed in contemporary media. So I think... A rough end got the uh, rough end of the stick in that one and not actually trying to execute on what they're... <laughs> Wait, rough end? <laughs> Imagine if it was called rough end. <laughs> All right. The Bill Fleck Big Break Award, named after the American indie actors Billy Bob and Ben Affleck, who jumped from indie films into the Hollywood big time in Armageddon. Who got their big break in these twin movies, starting with Rough Night? Well, I mean, the winner of this is pretty... Pretty clear, I guess. And it's not in, she's not in Rough Night. <laughs> um, 
Well, okay, let's just say, for the sake of it, Ilana Glazer, I think, is probably the nominee in Rough Night, mm-hmm. but she's going to be up against Tiffany Haddish and Girls Trip, and without even asking you, I think we agree that Tiffany gets it. Yeah, totally. I mean, I guess she didn't She didn't really come from, like, you know, Sundance Indies or whatever, but, I mean, unless Keanu played at Sundance, but, um, but yeah. I mean, it's a real breakout performance, so okay, give her the award. Next, the Before They Were Famous Award or Blink and You'll Miss Them, staying with Rough Night. Before They Were Famous. I mean. Or it can also be Blink and You'll Miss Them. Uh, well. So I guess you. Yeah, go on. I was going to say Eric Andre is in it. He's. Eric Andre playing detective. No, he's in one of the. He's in, you know the scene where like, I guess they're going, the, the, the. Bachelor party at the winery where they're just drinking Italian reds or whatever, and it's very lame. He's one of the guys there with Bo, Bo, Bo Burnham, and son Minhaj. Oh yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah. Yep. I don't know. Okay. Does that count? Uh, uh maybe. Yeah. <laughs> what a girls' trip. Any nominees there? Uh, well, blinking, you miss them. We said Ava Devane. Yep. Okay. Or Common. Any of the musician. Yeah, cameos. Mariah Carey. All right. Uh, Morris Chestnut as Morris Chestnut. <laughs> All right. Morris Chestnut as saying Robert Chestnut. You choose. Your choice. I, I, I do enjoy saying the words Morris Chestnut. Morris, <laughs> Morris uh, to add to your many awards and accolades over the years, you get to take home the Blink and You'll Miss Them Award for Girls Trip. Why not? Okay. The Tommy Lee Jones Show Stiller Award. Who stole the show despite being in a small or poorly written role, starting with Rough Night? Can we give Gillian Bell? Can we nominate her for this? Uh, who else? We've got Ty Burrell. Ty Burrell. I mean, he's, he, that bloke's hit a point where I used to be like, oh, check him out, he's in this thing. Now I'm like, oh, God, he's going to turn up and do the same old shtick. Yeah, totally. I mean, he could be also taking a paycheck as well. Um, uh, I don't think he elevated the role. I'm going to give it to Gillian. I agree. I think she does a lot with a little. So she's my nominee. Turning to Girls Trip, who would she be up against for this award? I mean, Tiffany Haddish. Would she be Would she be a contender here? She certainly- No, her role was pretty well written, I thought. I thought there was enough on the page. True, but I, I suppose she's chewing some scenery. Oh, well, there's an award for that. Oh, this is not this award? Oh, man, I get so confused with these awards, Ben. <laughs> <laughs> I get so confused. I mean, for example, I think Mike Mike Coulter playing uh, Ryan's or Regina's uh, husband. Oh, yep, is you know like walking that fine line for that character he has to do. So, uh, hmm, I don't know. Let's give it. To, oh, yeah, give it to Jillian. Let's give it to Jillian. Okay, the Mickey Rourke Award. So, who hasn't made the most of their opportunities after appearing in these films, starting with Rough Night? Uh. Hmm. I'll put forward a name. Okay. Paul W. Downs, who plays Scout Johansson's husband. Oh, yes. Or boyfriend-to-be. I mean, he was already on Broad City. He hasn't done much since. You know, he's done a couple of guest roles on TV and that's it. I guess you could say he should be kicking on more, but maybe the, you know, contractual requirements of his TV show make that hard to do. But I would have thought I'd be seeing him more. Mm. Um, okay. Anyone else? Well, I think he's a, a, a 
that'll do for rough night uh, nomination. Girls trip. Uh, well, I wish Lorenz Tate was in more movies. I like it when he turns up in things. Yeah, I'm surprised he's actually taken advantage of this to kind of like kickstart his career more. I mean, he's been in power, that TV series, since 2017. So I guess you could say he did take advantage of it. So maybe he's actually doing okay. And he was in House of Lies from 2013 to 15. So I think you've got to exclude him. Okay. Kate. Well, I, I don't want to exclude him from my heart in saying I wish Lorenz Tate was in more movies. How about that? That's fine to say. That's fine to say. Um, Kate Walsh, uh, who plays the agent, I mean, she's the one from Grey's Anatomy and all that sort of stuff. I guess she's got to – look, I can't, I can't put her down either. Look, here's where I'm at. I can't see anyone who's a comfortable nominee, so I'm suggesting that we just go with um, perhaps Paul W. Downs. Sure. For the Mickey Rock Award. I also want to do a quick revisit to a Blinking or Miss Them, Bo Burnham. Also at the uh, this, the wine sniffing Bucks night, mm. um, that that counts a pretty good nominee. So I might give him a runner up award okay. because he's barely in the film. I'm not sure why he's even in it. To be honest, he's a really funny guy in real life as stand up comedian, but also in what he starred in. But he's got nothing to do here at all. So I might just send him a little um, participation trophy. That's very thoughtful of you. Thank you. All right, the winner winner chicken dinner award. Who came out on top in each of these movies and was it their career high? So, Rough Night. Ooh. Did anyone? Well. I might the director because it's a big break for her. Yeah, she and Paul W. Downs seem to, I think he's writing the, what do you call it, the, I realise we nominated him in the last thing, but according to IMDb, writing or developing a 21 Jump Street spin-off which I feel like will never get made and that whole 21 Jump Street thing now passed by. <laughs> but, you know, sure. Um, yeah, maybe the director. She's gone on to do the new Babysitter's Club for Netflix. All right. And then it probably has to be uh, Tiffany Haddish from Girls Trip, right? Yeah, totally. All right, done. Best dialogue. So I think I think Tiffany gets it again. She's going to clean up here. Uh, moving on to the Best Dialogue Award. What's your favourite quote, Gabe? Did anything jump out, anything float your boat? Um, well, not in not in Rough Night. In Girls Trip, uh, that's some white boy shit right there. Oh yeah, when someone gets stuck on the flying fox uh, above the uh, the uh, streets of where is it? New, New Orleans. Orleans, the Big Easy. Look, I felt seen. You know, in a in a in a film ostensibly about the you know <laughs> female African American experience. I'm glad they put a little, just a little little something in for. For me, so thank you. <laughs> um, all right, for me, I had uh, it was rough night. I actually quite like this funny line where Jake says it's not cheating if it's with a prostitute. Technically, <laughs> oh yeah, okay. <laughs> I just thought that was just so ridiculous. Like, and they just kind of go, actually, that's precisely what it is. There weren't other any other lines that jumped out at me. Let me just think here. Um, yeah, it wasn't a particularly quotable movie. There were funny lines. But, yeah, nothing jumped out. So, uh, I don't know. Yeah. I mean, anytime in movies people are enthusiastic for cocaine, I always like that. <laughs> when did- and, I mean, I can't, I can't remember exactly what she said, but Gillian Bell does fulfil uh, cocaine enthusiasm. So. <laughs> um, let's give that one, call it a dead rubber, okay? Sure. Uh, no clear winner. All right, the Nicolas Cage Chewing the Scenery Award, starting with Rough Night. 
Oh, well, it's, that's easy, right? Who's that, Gabe? Who is chewing the scenery in Rough Night off the top of your head? So you're going to say, you're going to think I'm going to say someone, but I'm going to say Dean Winters. How do you like that? <laughs> I was saving him as a nominee for later. Oh, okay. Dean Winters, who plays a detective who's actually, spoilers, not a detective. Yeah, but, yeah, no, give it to Kate McKinnon. She's she's. Tasmanian tiger of just wrecking shit. Yep. <laughs> and how about uh, who's chewing scenery in Girls Trip? I don't know. I mean, Tiffany Haddish's performance is big, but- Kate Walsh? Yeah, her, definitely. I was going to say, Tiffany Haddish is doing a big performance. It doesn't actually kind of feel like cheaner scenery to me, but Kate Walsh is like, what is she doing? Like uh, appropriating um, African-American vernacular or whatever. Feels like she dials it right up. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So, yeah, give it to Kate Walsh. And I know you're a huge fan of that television show she was on. Oh, Grey's Anatomy or the sequel. That's the one. Yeah, I love that. Love that. To be clear to the audience, I don't love that at all. He does love it. Okay. So it looks like Kate McKinnon's getting the Nicolas Cage Chewing Scenery Award. Uh, the Taking a Paycheck Award speaks for itself, starting with Rough Night. Hmm. Demi Moore? I, I guess you could say Demi Moore, yeah, yeah. Like just des- desperate to have a role on screen. I mean, it's been a while and she's got a bit of a troubled past in terms of apparently her onset temperament. Uh, I'd say Demi Moore. What about uh, Girls Trip? Girls Trip. Taking a, taking a paycheck. Hmm. I, don't, I can't think of anyone that – I think they were actually probably doing the opposite. I think a lot of people were actually probably starring in cameos. I would suspect given the budget – for not much money at all, like just generously lending their name to the film, like those singers we mentioned before, like P. Diddy, um, Common and stuff, like singing on screen at the Essence Festival. But I don't think anyone was slumming it, you know, used to walking the planks in London and then doing a quick little cameo in this movie. Hmm. Turns out, um, I'm just looking at Demi Moore's IMDb, she's in an adaptation of Brave New World. Wow, there you go. Wow. <laughs> All right. That's so random fact for you. All right, so Demi Moore gets it. Now, the Stephen Toblowski Award, a.k.a. Hey, It's That Guy, named after the guy who played Ned Ryerson from Groundhog Day. So, Gabe, which actor triggered Hey, It's That Guy in you when he or she appeared on screen? Rough night. Is this what you were saving? Has to be. This is what you were saving, Dean, for. Dean Winters, right? Sure. Yeah. Fair enough. I Dean Winters here. Uh, how about Girls Trip? Hey, it's that guy. Well, well, Lorenz Tate. Yeah, I agree. I agree. I'm putting down Dean Winters as my winner because I actually think he'd be much more recognisable to most people as, hey, it's that guy. So Yeah, yeah. If you need a smarmy cop in your movie, don't overlook Dean. You know? <laughs> okay. Uh, another great award we love, the Delroy Linda Award for Great Actors Who Aren't Cast Often Enough named after the incredible actor from Get Shorty, Heist, A Life Less Ordinary, and most recently, Spike Lee's The Five Bloods. So let's start with Rough Night. Any Delroy Lindo award nominees there? Uh, I mean, people have, we've already given awards to. I'd like to see more Dean Winters. I'd like to see more Gillian Bell. Cast them and stuff. Cast them together. Yep. Cast them as a oddly paired romantic comedy. I don't know. I'm putting forward Gillian uh, Bell. Uh, okay, how about Girls Trip? Anyone jump out? I mean, they're all they're all good, uh, but in the in the in the Delroy Lindo, uh, 
What do you reckon? What do you reckon? I don't know. I mean, I don't. I think Queen Latifah is always very naturalistic on screen. Mm. Like, I find her. She actually can become a character um, incredibly smoothly. Like, I always buy her as a character on screen. Screen, despite her her breadth of work outside like traditional movies. So, I'm gonna put her down. Just uh, looking at IMDb, I think she's she's starring in a, the Equalizer TV series. Oh, and, that brings our love for the Equalizer with Queen Latifah. That's amazing. I, I'd like to see Queen Latifah shooting people with nail guns. Yeah, it'd be, it'd be incredible. I'd watch the heck out of that. Sure. Yeah, and like making soup slowly in a small apartment by herself, like Denzel Washington did. Why not? Why not? I like it. Uh, so let me think. I'm gonna put down my ultimate one. Will be. I'll put down Queen Latifah. Sure. I can't remember what award this is, so let's go with that. <laughs> All right, the Memphis Reigns Award, inspired by the absurdly named character played by Nick Cage from Gone in 60 Seconds. Do we have any ludicrous names in these movies, Gabe? And who steals the cake? It's a shame that we kind of don't. There is no... No. There's no ridiculous... Kiwi, I guess, Kate McKinnon's character, which meant to be a play on the fact that she's mistaken as a New Zealander and an Australian, but it's kind of dumb. That's dumb. No, nothing. What a All right. What a load of shit. Dead rubber. All right. We're pulling into the uh, the final stretch here for the awards. It's the Memento Award, named for moments you completely forgot about. Uh, so I rewatched Rough Night for the second time, and the only thing I couldn't recall was the part where <laughs> there's a part where the scene where they're having sex in that three-way with Zoe Kravitz and her legs are in the air. I was kind of shocked by that. I couldn't recall that scene. And, and the entire posse of women in their joining house watching through the telescope. I couldn't recall. That was quite funny uh, in watching that again. Um, I've forgotten there was the entire subplot with the guy astronauting it. Uh, I couldn't. Re- oh, so would I. You're right. I, I completely forgot about that. You're totally right. <laughs> and I'd f- yeah, I mean, c- quite a lot of stuff, to be honest, in that uh, it was actually kind of a forgettable movie the first time. So <laughs> f- fast swathes. Uh, How about Girls Trip? I can't comment on this because I already I hadn't seen it, but how about you? Uh, yeah, quite a lot. And not really for the same reason because I didn't find this movie as, you know, it's, I, didn't, I wouldn't describe this movie as forgettable, but just stuff that I was like, oh, yeah, that's right, that's funny. The, the scene with the, the guy who turns up at the uh, CD motel and he's looking for someone to uh, <laughs> pleasure him for five bucks. That's funny. That's very funny. And, I mean, that whole sequence, I thought it was really funny and well played. Yeah, I don't know. Lots of little, little bits and pieces in this. I, I think it goes back to the thing. Girl Strip does have a really high firing joke ratio. They really throw a lot of jokes at the screen. So, so there's, there's definitely enough there for a second viewing. Yeah, okay. Um, I'll, I say we put forward Rough Night because uh, not remembering an entire side plot is pretty big, pretty big deal, so I agree with you on that. Okay, fair. Last award, the Die Hard Award. Did any of these films, just like Die Hard inspired Under Siege, did any of these films inspire any clones at all? Now, I can't think. In fact, I think these films were very much inspired by other films themselves, but has there been suddenly a tsunami of um, reunion films with loud, you know, crazy female characters? I don't think so. No, not really. 
And I guess I'm surprised that they haven't sort of, uh, that someone hasn't capitalised on it in terms of the sort of, you know, black uh, uh, friendship outrageous thing and, you know, made a bunch of sort of knockoffs in a way. Uh, but, you know, I guess people just don't want to make money. <laughs> yeah, I agree. Um, I don't think these films have set a trend at all, although I think definitely Girls Trip should, but we'll see what happens if a sequel comes about. All right, it's come to that time of the podcast, the Milking the Speed Cow Dry Award. Uh, so imagine this. Let's say there's an opportunity to make a sequel to a Rough Night of Girls Trip. They're both about a reunion of women that come together to think about the past and celebrate the present. Gabe, which film do we make a sequel to and what's our pitch to make it? Okay, this is fucked because obviously we'd want to make the sequel to the, you know, movie that did well, but I feel like if we rolled up to the, uh, to, to the studio, as it were, we're like, hi, we're here to pitch the Girls Trip 2 sequel. This is a real problem. I, you know, <laughs> the optics of it are not great, uh, even if we wanted the job. Well, two middle-class white guys rocking up to pitch Girls Trip 2. You know what's even worse than that? They rock up uninvited. <laughs> yeah, that's right. That's right. No one even asked you for this, you fucks. Like, <laughs> come on. But our pitch is really good. I, I truly understand the African-American female perspective. <laughs> well, first of all, let's decide on which film and then we'll talk about the, the ethics of whether we're the right people to pitch it afterwards. Uh, actually, you know what? You might have actually walked into something interesting is that we've talked about films being sequels that are like a spin-offs, right? So we could do a spin-off of either one of these films with guys. And interestingly enough, Malcolm Lee's first film was actually about this. A group of African-American guys get together for, I think it's a Bucks Night. That was his debut film like 20 years ago, right? So we could just do basically a male spin-off of either one of these. So let's just decide, first of all, which one to do a spin-off of. So, Rough Night. Didn't do very well at the box office. None of the characters have gone on or the actors have gone on to have great careers based on this film, although they're great actors. And the film was reviewed badly. So, I'm thinking as a piece of intellectual property, probably not the right film to do a sequel to. Girls Trip is the opposite in every possible way. Critical smash, very popular cast, huge reviews from critics and fans. So Girls Trip is a no-brainer here for a sequel and for whatever reason they haven't done one. If they haven't because of contractual disputes regarding salary or something like that, because I just can't think, besides perhaps a scheduling conflict, why they wouldn't push ahead to make more money with Girls Trip 2, what could the pitch be by us to do that? <laughs> mm. Well, I think, yeah, we definitely need to get into uh, spin-off territory. <laughs> Even that, um, I feel, is, uh, is is dicey territory, but let's go with it anyway. The, uh, the spin-off of Girls Trip is now about uh, a bunch of white guys. <laughs> <laughs> and how do we justify that? That's terrible. <laughs> if you liked if you liked hip-hop and soul music at the annual Essence Festival, well, you'll love uh, country music and, or actually, how about it's about fucking juggalos? It's about white guys going to the Juggalo Festival. <laughs> like find a find a find a what's the most 
white festival we can think of. Actually, you know what? Uh, oh, what's that stupid one out in the desert? Which all those fucking nimbies, you know, like Burning Man. Burning Man, you know. Uh, four lifelong friends travel to Burning Man for the, you know, brotherhoods are rekindled, wild sides are rediscovered, and there's still enough dancing, drinking, brawling, and romancing to make. <laughs> where's where's that in Joshua Tree or some fuck? I don't know. Wherever Burning Man's at. Well, here's the pitch, right? You could say, look, Mr. and Ms. Studio Executive, we aren't the right screenwriters to write the sequel to Girls Trip 2 for many reasons, for many reasons. However, let's take the lessons from that film. You thought that a film with four black leads couldn't make as much money as a film like Rough Night, and you were proved wrong. Made a ton of cash. Critics loved it. Audiences loved it. What can we take from that? What are the lessons here? What is another minority that isn't represented on screen as much that traditionally Hollywood has thought couldn't be profitable, but there's a willing audience out there? Now, it could be the attendees of Burning Man or Juggalos. Is there anyone else? And so what we do is we say, we're going to do a sequel of Girl's Trip, but we'll take all the lessons from Girl's Trip and make another film that will be a huge smash and at least is more in our wheelhouse as middle-class white dudes who get to make enough films in Hollywood as it is. But for the record for this particular pitch, it's something that we probably can know a little bit more about and have more authority on as storytellers. So, uh, wait, who, who, Burning Man. Who are these people? Australians? <laughs> Australians. <laughs> so, a group. So, Chris Hemsworth and his brother and his other brother. The three Hemsworths oh, go on a- I like it. It's a mockumentary where they go in the style of Kenny, a TV mockumentary, sorry, a movie mockumentary. They go on a Bucks night for the youngest Hemsworth's wedding. Literally no one knows which Hemsworth is the youngest. Well, he's the second most good looking one. So he's not Chris, the other one. That doesn't help me. <laughs> he's the one who dated Miley Cyrus. So devastated after breaking up with Miley Cyrus, they go on a kind of like a bender to get feel better about themselves. Yeah, sure. And rather than go to Las Vegas, which is where The Hangover was set, they go to the Gold Coast. They drive from Byron Bay to the Gold Coast where Casino is in Australia and everything goes pear-shaped in the vein of Girls Trip meets Stag Night meets Rough Night meets The Hangover. What do you think? Sure. Okay. Or maybe we f- introduce a fictional fourth Hemsworth just so people know we're not being too serious when we're like this plot revolves around the idea that Liam Hemsworth just wants to fuck but also has chlamydia. So what if, for example, in the spirit of the film Twins with Danny DeVito and Arnie Schwarzenegger, there's a fourth Hemsworth who is the inverse of all Hemsworth, and that is the brother they discover who's actually a half-brother. <laughs> Wait, actually- There's an, an affair. No, how's this? What if, what if Chris and Liam discover they just have a brother called Luke? <laughs> <laughs> oh, I'm sorry. How about this? How about this? The Hemsworth are Olivia and Byron, and they get called to the Gold Coast to a casino where, they, where their lawyer is based where they discover during the reading of the will that there is a fourth Hemsworth brother. <laughs> mm-hmm. Sure. And they have to try and track down this fourth Hemsworth in 24 hours to stop him from getting 25%. No, in fact, 
100% of the inheritance, which their dad has assigned to the fourth brother, who he always thought was more in the spirit of Hemsworth Sr. and his three sons. And they discover the fourth brother, who is played by... Danny McBride. And now we think of a character that is the most unlike Hemsworth character of all time. Danny McBride. And actually, we'll steal the movie as being the most entertaining person of the movie. And in the end, the audience is actually rooting for this person to get the money. Maybe this guy is like a kind of um, a guy who works for charity, uh, based in Sydney, is someone who isn't as wealthy as the Hemsworths, probably not as attractive, probably short, bit dumpy, maybe bald, but he's a hell of a guy. And he's going to take all that money and throw it to charity. And so the Hemsworths basically play uh, arrogant, um, selfish versions of themselves, taking the piss out of themselves, as they try and get the money back from this lovable fourth Hemsworth brother. What do you think? Yeah, totally. Uh, I googled ugliest Australian actors. Oh, wow. <laughs> and um, someone put together an IMDb list, but it's fucking nuts. Like, this makes no sense. It's like... Um, Guy Pierce. Guy Pierce. What fucking universe <laughs> is Guy Pierce ugly? Who are these people who do these fucking lists? Wow. What the hell? They must live on Beauty Island or something. I don't know. Some sort of. You know. <laughs> um, but yeah, okay. I like this. I like this pitch. I feel if we're, uh, you know, having started at Girls Trip and reached um, a gross-out comedy where at some point the three Hemsworth brothers all get to give each other reach-arounds or something. I'm, I'm happy with that. I feel like that's a movie two white guys could write. Excellent. And then what actually happens at the end? Where does this film go in the end? Who wins? Do all three Hemsworths die tragically and the fourth Hemsworth actually survives? And right, They're not the bald ones. <laughs> bring it home, Gabe. Come on, bring it home. Like, tie a bow on it. Uh, Where do we end up at the end of this? Is it Does it end up being that the fourth Hemsworth all three Hemsworths are all filmed in a very negative way and basically their careers are burnt and the fourth Hemsworth becomes an unlikely character actor in a big Hollywood film, you know, kind of a bit of a Croc Dundee, you know, Paul Hogan character in the end after that. doesn't have to be particularly Aussie or anything, but the uh, an unlikely success story. Sure, sure. I like it. He could be Thor. He could... Take the mantle. He actually plays Fat Thor in the next film. Yeah. He carries it on. Why not? All right. And, and it's called Girls Trip 2, The Hems. Like, how do we? No one will even know this is part of a, 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 I feel like we just invented our own thing. I feel like we just rolled up to a studio and pitched some weird movie and they're just going to be like, nobody wants this. Piss off. No. The, the sequel for Girls Trip with three Hemsworth brothers it's clearly got to be called something like Not Girls Trip. Yeah. Um, and and that's the gag. And on the poster it actually has, you know, not sort of scribbled across the top, you know, to make it clear that it's such a sort of afterthought. Sure. It's fairly insulting. I like it. And that's how you make a sequel to the mega smash Girls Trip. Hmm. <laughs> All right, Gabe, that brings us to the end of the show. A big thanks to our awesome sound editor, Sam Haywood, for making this episode and us sound so good. Gabe, as every week, where can listeners find more of your work and musings online? Twitter. Twitter at Gabe Dowrick. Twitter. Excellent. And I'm at Ben Phelps on Twitter and Instagram and YouTube.com slash Ben Phelps. And you can find this pod and other pods like it. Like a, a true crime one. 
the true crime one you're doing now. True crime one. Also, um, <laughs> I'm, I'm happy to announce I'm launching my ASMR pod uh, that I described earlier. It's just me saying, Morris Chest, Morris Chest, Morris Chest, Morris Chest. <laughs> wow. You actually release that perhaps as like a sleep tape or something like yeah, that as totally, well. Yeah, totally, totally. Make some Morris serious Chest, coin. Morris, <laughs> Chest, Morris, Morris Chest. Nice. Uh, thank you for listening, folks, to Gabe's mouth acoustics. It's very popular, ASMR. Very popular. Oh, sure. Take care and stay tuned for another Twin Movies battle very soon. See you, Gabe. Bye. <laughs>